Welcome to the iSector Selections Podcast. This is Chuck Self, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Investment Officer of iSectors. Today we're going to cover our post-NPT allocations and how this improves the application of modern portfolio theory. And with me today is iSectors founder and CEO, Vern Sumnick, as well as the guy who actually created the iSectors post-NPT allocations. Thank you for joining us, Vern. Thank you, Chuck. Why, why don't we get started by giving our listeners a little overview in history of postmodern portfolio theory. And of course, you'll probably have to talk about modern portfolio theory okay. in that process. Okay, sure. Um, well, Chuck, as you know, as a graduate of the University of Chicago, the uh, modern portfolio theory was developed at the University of Chicago um, Harry Markowitz, Bill Sharp, and uh, a number of other guys, including uh, Miller, were all given a Nobel Prize in 1990 uh, for what was called financial economics. And modern portfolio theory was developed by these guys uh, back in the uh, 1950s. Um, it, it, it would be almost impossible to overstate the value of modern portfolio theory to the uh, uh, current state of the art when it comes to financial management uh, and investment management. These guys really created the core scientific principles um, that uh, modern investing is based on. And the problem is that, you know, since 1959, right, when um, Harry Markowitz actually published the uh, paper, Portfolio Selection, um, a lot's been done. A lot's been learned, and unfortunately, um, it hasn't found its way into the current state of the art of investing. Um, so that's kind of why we've given the um, iSectors um, strategy that we've developed. It's kind of why we call it post-MPT. Now it doesn't have anything to do with eliminating any of the principles of modern portfolio theory Modern portfolio theory is all of the principles are as solid today as they were then, and they will always be solid. It's just the application, really, of those principles that we have uh, developed, developed further, or are applying with our with our post MPT strategies. And, and you wrote. Uh... A paper about uh, this, which is available on our website www.isectors.com, in which you you talked about uh, that uh, background. I was very happy that you mentioned your University of Chicago, of course, and and of course uh, having the uh, Nobel Prize uh, winner this year being behavioral economics, because behavioral economics right. seem to have a role in what uh, post MP is all about or postmodern portfolio theory is all about so um, 
tell me about uh, uh, when you launched the post-MPT strategies and uh, what were you thinking back then? Why, why did you do that? Well, you know, we were very unhappy with the results, or I guess I should say I was unhappy with the results that our clients were getting. Um, they were fine results, but when the markets had their, uh, shall we say, correction or crash in 2000, it was very disappointing to see everything go down. And you're always talking to clients about diversification. And you're always talking to clients about the fact that the reason you diversify is that you can't time the markets. There's always going to be things going down, but there's always going to be things going up and we're trying to offset and reduce that risk, the risk of the market by using diversification. Well, very disappointing when everything goes down. Um, same thing actually happened again in 2008 and nine when the market uh, uh, had a, its worst crash in 100 years or so. So that dissatisfaction began me, you know, began uh, the process, I guess, in my head of starting to really rethink things. First thing I did was rethink the whole idea of should we be using passive or active? And again, <laughs> go back to the University of Chicago. But an awful lot of studies have been done years over the years, and these studies have never proven, there's never been a study that's been done of probably hundreds of papers and research that's been done. Uh, lots of solid empirical evidence proves that you know, money managers can't outperform their indexes net of their fees. As a matter of fact, going back to the uh, modern portfolio theory, one of the principles of modern portfolio theory was the efficient market theory. And the efficient market theory, there's several uh, forms that uh, Terry Markowitz and his uh, friends developed, but the strong form of the efficient market theory says that professional money managers will, will underperform their index equal to their fees. And, you know, amazingly, as much as I knew that, um, you know, having an MBA, not from the University of Chicago, but every MBA well, student in investing they know studies. That. Yes, yeah, they know There that. is nothing else to study. It is the, as I said, that is the scientific principles, and you don't manage money unless you study those scientific principles. So, um, but we, we all know that, we, we know that, uh, that, that the efficient market theory is real. We understand it. And yet people seem to want to think that they can, um, be different, right? You always think, well, if the, on average, you're going to underperform, that means there's always going to be the ones that are above average. So I'll just put my money with the guys that are above average by doing great due diligence. Well, we did great due diligence for 20 years. 20 years of great due diligence, and then I stopped and looked at it. Um, and I really analyzed our results. And guess what? On average, our clients' portfolios had underperformed the markets equal to the fees. 
I mean, we did fine, right? I mean, but we were always hanging. Just, you know, one and a half percent, you know, or so under the markets on average. And the reason that is, is you can't stay in just the best performing money managers because the best performing money managers don't stay the best performing money managers, right? Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a problem that the past performance, you know, the story, right? Past performance does not guarantee future results. And that's so true. And that began the process. And it began the process of saying, we got to do something different and something better than what we've been doing. And I tend to be pretty academic in things when I look at things, you know, you, uh, you, you want to do things, you want to do things right. I tend to be very uh, quantitative in things. And so this, the process was really going back to the research. And that's what started the process, you know, uh, even behavioral finance, again, you know, yes, these guys just got their Nobel Prize, but uh, from University of Chicago is where behavioral finance started. That's the concepts began there. And again, um, the white paper that I have has uh, uh, more information on, uh, on all of these subjects that, that Chuck mentioned. And again, you can get that on our website. But Exhibit B of that talks about behavioral finance. But, you know, these are some of the principles that sort of developed after modern portfolio theory developed. And behavioral finance came out in, just as an example, um, we know that investors hate the downside, right? Matter of fact, we know that they're twice as dissatisfied with a, you know, with a couple of percent down as they are satisfied with a couple of percent up. Well, in a certain sense, it makes a lot of sense, you know, but um, obviously if you get down, if you if you have $100 and you lose 50%, now you got $50. Well, it takes 100% return on that $50 just to get back to where you were, right? So 50% loss requires 100% return to recover. So maybe investors should be twice as dissatisfied with the downside. But the bottom line is that measuring risk, for example, using the traditional approach of, um, of standard deviation is just simply a mistake. It's wrong. Uh, standard deviation just says volatility. It just upside and downside are both volatility, right? So if you say an investment's bad because it's, quote, volatile, then you're not giving any value to whether it's upside volatility or downside volatility. And again, this is this is the research, right? This is in the this is this, people know this. Well, and advisors uh, also know that they never get phone calls from clients saying, "Oh, you're giving me too much upside volatility." Right. Uh, right. You know, they never get those kind of calls. Right. Uh, right. It's 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 only when it's on uh, the downside. Right. So so you identified. Uh, 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 that you should be focused on downside volatility. There's this general volatility is is one of right. one of the things that you should focus on. Um, and and if if I'm to understand you correctly, we're not saying that uh, modern portfolio theory was bad or or just or or, or it doesn't make sense. It's just that uh, uh, we we've gone through the process of refining it uh, using right. postmodern portfolio theory. What, right. what 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 kind of other things? 
um, does uh, postmodern portfolio theory or, or the research indicate that uh, we should look at sure. in addition to uh, focus on downside risk as opposed to total risk? Sure. See that the real, um, one of the biggest problems with what we do now, with what we, uh, what, with what we do um, currently, and the reason that people tend to relate it to modern portfolio theory, I think in error, you know, you'll, you'll see people, especially back in 2008 and 2009, you know, there were articles, modern portfolio theory is dead, you know. Um, and that was because everything went down at the same time. Well, you know, modern portfolio theory isn't the problem. And, but what is the problem is there was a small formula that um, the uh, developers of modern portfolio theory used to prove some of their hypothesis. It was called mean variance optimization, big word, but it just meant, um, it just represented a small formula that people use. And unfortunately, Harry Markowitz and Bill Sharp um, have said for years, and uh, Harry's still alive, and he continues to tell people, don't use mean variance optimization to manage real people's money. It was a great tool for us to use to prove our theories. But when you're proving theories, it's always in an environment that holding all things equal, you know, this, you know the story, right? Holding everything equal, then this is the case. Well, that's kind of how mean variance in a world where you can hold all things equal, you know, then uh, that it works fine. But what it did was it used three variables. So you would, uh, to determine the asset allocation of a portfolio. So you needed to know the expected return of a of an, a particular investment. You needed to know the standard deviation or the volatility of that particular investment, and you needed to know the correlation of that investment and all the other investments that you wanted to use in a portfolio. How they correlated, how they related to each other, um, and those three variables then are used to determine how you maximize your asset allocation. That is how you get the best possible return for whatever level of risk uh, you're willing to take. And don't we know those ahead. numbers from the historical numbers? Can we, we can, can we just use can we can we just use the historical numbers and then yeah. come up with the uh, and that's the what best Harry and the boys did. That's what they had to do, right? And so that was convenient. Mm -hmm. Holding all things equal, that works well, right? So the problem is, let's let's go back to uh, standard deviation as a measure of risk. Well. The problem with that is that that kind of volatility would would assume in an old all things equal environment when you're doing the theories right that says well you know as long as upside and downside volatility are equal then maybe it's true right if, if it's exactly equal it doesn't matter because then it tells you that you know if you have x upside you have x downside volatility so in a certain sense it's true as long as there's what they call a bell-shaped curve so that the frequency of returns is the same on the upside as they are on the downside problem is they never are and everybody knows it right so this is not this is not rocket science everybody knows the returns of any investment are skewed typically one way or the other and it's the problem is where you can uh, where you hurt yourself is that you'll tend to throw out really good investments simply because they have upside volatility. And as Chuck said, 
no client has ever come to any advisor that I'm aware of anyway and said, gosh, Vern, you know, you told me this investment was supposed to return 5% a year. And you know, the last three or four years, it's been 10. That really, you know, who would say that, you know? So on the other hand, if it was supposed to be 5% on the downside and it was 10, well, that would be a, that would be a problem, you know, clients would complain. So, you know, clients just don't lose my money. Lose money, bad. Lose money, in their minds, equivalent to risk. Behavioral science confirms that. Clients don't like to lose money. I shouldn't have to say that. And behavioral science should not have to think that up or tell us that, but clients do not like to lose risk. So, we can simply, uh, in our approach to things, we just simply set a threshold. Don't go below zero. You know, they, just don't lose money. That that's a simple that's a simple mathematical statement or a simple simple concept, and it seems really ridiculous when I tell people, you know, this 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 story about standard deviation. It's like no kidding, but honest to God, you know, that is one of the variables of the three they use. So the other one is expected return, for example, expected return. Um, and again, in in our in our white paper, there's um, explanations in uh, the paper about a little bit more detail on some of these things, but expected return. Well, Chuck, as you know, you're a, Chuck's a, a statistics major, right? So he really gets this. But expected return is flat out a guess, okay? Nobody knows. Um, so let's use a, a little example. This is- Oh, so a, I can't use the past, the past 10 years when no. uh, most of the years have been up 10% plus, I can't use that. Sure. For the future number? It's a simple gambler's fallacy in this whole thing. When people go play roulette, they love this. And this is very common, right? They stand around, they go, well, if it comes up red, like whatever your number, let's say 10 times in a row, then I'm going to do what? Then you're going to do what, right? Okay, well, if it comes up red 10 times in a row, I'm going to bet on black. Okay, so what you what you what you're in effect saying when you say that is, when it comes up red 10 times in a row, row then it's gonna to revert to the mean. It's gonna, it's gotta come up with a black, right? Well, that's a fallacy. That's a fallacy. It, it, frankly, it doesn't matter. The next spin of the wheel is exactly 50-50, right? So as Chuck says, the past results have no reflection on the future. They have zero reflection on the future. The other thing that you might do, right? You might say, well, she became up red 10 times in a row. It's going to come up red 11 times, right? And in fact, you're going to bet on the trend. Well, that's what happens when people do expected return. They do one of two things. They either say, hmm, well, lately, the trend has been that the market's returns are have been, you know, for this particular investment or this asset class has been uh, a little higher than the average. So therefore, I'm going to go with the trend. I'm going to bet on the trend, right? Um, or, you know, they go the other way and they say, well, it's been playing a little bit over, you know, the top of its normal long-term average. So I'm going to bet that it's going to end up being a little less than average. Um, so you, you know, they, either one of those things is wrong. It's simply the same thing as playing roulette. You're guessing. And the truth of the matter is, you don't know. 
Nobody knows. And therefore, it's a 100% guess. And if you're putting numbers in a formula to tell a client how to manage his real dollars, his personal money that he's saved over the years, and you're using a guess to make that asset allocation, and you know, if you've got nine investments, for example, that you're going to allocate among, you're guessing nine times. How accurate are you going to be in your asset allocation for this gentleman with his real hard-earned money? Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely ludicrous. Well, so then in, for the ISOCRS post-amputee strategy, um, I assume we're not, you're not guessing what the uh, returns right. and, and uh, standard deviation or downside risk uh, will be how how do how does the process uh, determine right. the uh, returns and and risk for each of these assets? Right. We have just a little bit different approach to how we uh, you know go about um, uh, approaching the uh, uh, the math, I guess, in in uh, in our uh, post MPT strategy, and uh, to make it sort of, uh, you know, to make it simple, first of all, we do not use standard deviation. We do not use expected return. Um, frankly, we just don't have to. And um, the other one was correlation, and we don't use that either. Uh, correlation changes all the time. It's a kind of a moving, moving target, and most advisors seldom do uh, review the correlation among the investments they're using. As a matter of fact, um, you know, they, they tend to want to use large value, large growth, small value, small growth, mid value, mid growth, et cetera, for actually no empirical evidence that I've ever found to support that decision. And, uh, well, Chuck knows. We've done this research uh, together and we've verified it many times as we update our correlation analysis regularly. And the uh, fact is that you know, over time, what, what we kind of coined a term on this, there's been correlation convergence on those asset classes. Uh, simply what it means is that they all tend to move exactly together. The correlation is almost 100%. Uh, they're moving up and down almost 100% together. So that's why, the you know people started thinking modern portfolio theory is dead that's the biggest reason because everything went down at the same time well the problem was that uh, they were investing in the things that they were investing in even if they were allocating among those things if they all go down at the same time they all go down at the same time so you need to determine uh, investments that are non-correlated and actually it's just how do you slice the pie right you got a universe out there of investments. We don't have to slice the pie up into large value, large growth, small value, small growth, mid value, mid growth. We can slice the pie differently. We can slice the pie any way we want to. Um, and frankly, this, this was just something that hit me one night, and that is that thinking about how we can slice the pie, I guess, is the actual thought that, that I had. And we just kind of, I, I, I honestly didn't take me probably six hours to go through the process of kind of determining what the primary, I've had advisors tell me this, uh, I should call these primary uh, sectors. Um, but it wasn't hard to determine what the quote primary sectors are. In other words, it wasn't hard to determine what sectors had the least correlation to each other. 
and that everything else correlated to one of those. In effect, we only need nine. Um, and again, it wasn't hard to determine that, you know, and uh, you can very quickly see that like basic materials, a lot of things are highly correlated, chemicals, defense, consumer durables, they're all highly correlated to basic materials. But basic materials is the least correlated to the other nine or the other eight investments that we use. Therefore, basic materials became uh, one of our primary sectors that we use in our asset allocation. And so that's kind of a fixed thing. We have nine investments um, that we allocate among that have very low correlation or and sometimes negative correlation to each other. Uh, I could probably get a good chunk of those. That's uh, basic materials, financials, energy, healthcare, uh, gold equities is is uh, one of the asset classes that we use. 20-year uh, treasuries and um, technology. There you go. Utilities. Jack's going to get the rest. <laughs> and uh, let's see, we said uh, energy. We got to be close. Yeah, yeah. that's got to be financials. Uh, and again, it's all it's right, all right, right, right. it's on the, the on the paper. Is yeah, okay. highly. Uh, they are, are very low correlated. Low correlated with each other. So, so it was important to be able to, to determine um, how you're going to allocate the money. Yep. yep. The, so you can have a and and, be, and having a low correlated group of assets allows you to have a yep. more highly diversified the, portfolio, which right. then allows you to so have no matter, down, downside in effect, risk. In effect, then no matter how we allocate among those asset classes, right? Uh, we know. We're allocating among asset classes that have low correlation to uh, to each other. So we can just drop that whole calculation right there, right? We can just set it. We know. So in effect, if you want to think about it this way, in effect, instead of using standard deviation, we just say, hey, hey, you know, in our math, okay, and I don't want to get into the details of the math, that's too complicated for this, but in our math, we just simply say, don't go below zero. It's very simple. It's a fixed deal threshold. Here it is. Don't go below zero. We don't need standard deviation. We don't care about the volatility. We just don't want to lose money. So same thing with the uh, correlation number. We don't really need the correlation. All we need to know is that we have very low correlation among all nine of our asset classes. So therefore, as long as we're allocating among them, we're low correlated. So that takes care, you know, that takes care of that. It really, it really makes it makes it easy, but uh, uh, the strategy doesn't equally allocate to the no, uh, no, nine, no, nine no. classes. So, so how are those uh, allocations right. uh, determined? Well, and that's actually an interesting point because, in effect, uh, we also don't need expected return because, in effect, nobody knows what the returns are. Right? I don't know what the returns are. You don't know what the returns are. We're not going to use that number. We're just going to allocate among nine low correlated asset classes. The returns will be what the returns will be, right? But what what is what is important, you know? So how are we going to allocate the assets then? Well, if you really stop and think about it, there are a lot of things that affect the market, and there's a lot of empirical evidence out there. A lot of PhD guys that you know to get their PhD, they had to write a paper, <laughs> they had to do study, and if you're in finance. You're kind of limited on what you can write papers. I like. Well, I guess there's an awful lot of things, but 
one of the main subjects of, of a lot of PhD papers is, uh, uh, you know, what affects the stock market, you know? So they'll come up with a theory, whether that's, uh, you know, short skirts. It might be, you know, when shorts, when shirts get short, skirts get shorter, the markets tend to go up. Well, that was a legitimate theory at one time, theory only. Uh, but they'll come up with their hypothesis. When the NFL wins, the markets always go up. When the AFL wins, the markets always, you know. I mean, there are all kinds of hypotheses that were studied. And, um, you know, what, what we, we do know that in all of that research, right, very solid, empirically well-developed studies, well-proven uh, hypotheses of things that we literally, when we did this, we probably the hardest part of what we were, you know, what we did was to determine. But we knew there are a lot of things that affect the stock market. So it's just, again, just pure, simple logic. There's a lot of things affecting the stock market. Expected return, standard deviation, and correlation are not one of the ones, right? So how we're going to allocate our money should not be based on things that really don't affect them. We want to base it on things that really do affect the stock market if this makes sense. So the hardest part about this is to determine empirically, right? We didn't want to just guess a bunch of stuff. We wanted to know what, what were the, what things had the greatest effect on the movement of the stock market. And so we literally pulled out all these PhD papers. I literally printed out 500 some PhD papers. And, um, I, I, my, my uh, process of cutting it was I literally had an intern and I simply said, go through these, go through these papers and pull out all of the ones that say, my hypothesis is that something affects the stock market. You know, so just read the abstract. What if their hypothesis in this paper is this or that or the other thing affects the stock, put it in one pile, pick the other ones and put it in the other pile. Well, I, I cut it down to about 25% of, of those. I said, okay, now go to the back page and read the conclusion and put in another pile, all of the ones that say, yes, my research proved, you know, that my hypothesis of X affecting the stock market was true. Put those all in a pile, okay? And, and literally, that's what I did. I, Got it down to, you know, I don't, I, I don't know, we were down to maybe 30, something like that, papers at that time. So then the next cut was now. I want you to go through because I found that a lot of the papers would say, yes, my hypothesis is correct, but it wasn't valuable enough, the difference or the, the relationship, uh, the correlation between this factor and the stock market is not strong enough to overcome the cost of trading. That was a real common thing. So I told them, go through one more time, and any of those, pull them out. Well, I pulled out another, I don't know, 10 or something. So we ended up with maybe 20, 20 to, I don't know, 20 to 30, somewhere in there, of, of papers that said, yes, this thing affects the stock market. Okay, so I, I basically took those and studied those a little bit more in detail. And my objective was to find somewhere around a dozen or so that had, you know, in my opinion, based on the research I was looking at, that had the strongest, the things that tended to have the strongest effect or the strongest correlation on the movement of the stock market. And you know what? It was kind of, again, it, it's one of those things where 
in the end, when you get all done, it comes up to be a very logical, depending on, you could have guessed in the first place, mm-hmm. if you were thinking, you could have guessed it. Because when you say it, people kind of look at you and go, well, really, you did all that for that, you know? Because we ended up with 15, because it was hard, actually. There, there's a few other ones that are good. But these 15 seem to be the, have the strongest influence on the market over the longest periods of time. And those were simply things like, duh, interest rates, money supply, unemployment, you know, uh, uh, spread interest rate spreads between like long term, long term and short term bonds or high yields and, and high quality bonds, uh, you know, dividend yields and, and all, all of the, the kinds of things that, you know, you would just intuitively anyway, if you were an investor, you, you know, or you studied economics, or you had a, a clue, you would intuitively know affect the stock market. And so, so that's it. So, that's so, you get, so you got these factors. Now, how does that relate to uh, deciding what the asset allocation sure. is uh, amongst the, the nine different fact, right. nine different sectors? Right. So I wasn't the genius that thought this up. A guy named Richard Oberick thought this up. He wrote a book called Dynaport. And um, Richard was an operations research kind of a guy. And if you're uh, into mathematics, you, you know that's a strange kind of uh, form of a detailed and very difficult form of mathematics, right? Or, or a study of mathematics. Um, it kind of combines all kinds of different things together and uses them in a practical way, sort of, um, and tries to use them in a practical way. But Richard being that kind of a practical math guy, if we want to say. Very good in all types of math, but also very good at using uh, whatever math is needed to get to where he's going, right? So he thinks this up. He he says, you know, we can just use a simple linear programming approach to things, and we can just say, we we in fact develop an equation that has, in our case, um, now, Richard only had the equation, right? He didn't have any of the pieces, right? It's, It's just an equation. So, it's just a mathematical equation. It's like saying, you know, correlation, you know, expectancy. But what investments you use, what the factors that you want to apply. And then, of course, we had to also go through some regression. And I won't get into the stats, but we'll, we'll do a day with Chuck and get into a regression analysis. And maybe you can tell us and remind us about multicollinearity and all these good things. But, um, you know, we had, to, we had to apply some statistics to determine the lag times on some of these investments. When does a change in money supply affect the market? When does a change in, you know, et cetera? Uh, interest rates affect the stock market. So, but, you know, so we don't, we really don't get that from the, the formula. But once we determine these things, those are the variables that we're using to put into the formula. And then it's a matter of a, a process of, of what they call linear programming that, that basically looks at all of the potential options. And um, we're telling the, uh, we're, we're, we're putting one of our, our inputs every month are the changes in these various factors, right? So as these factors change, we take the change that month and that is one of the inputs uh, in our computer program. So we'll have 15 inputs every month and we'll have nine investments that the computer's looking at. And basically, based on, we're, we're telling the pro- 
the computer, okay, you've got all this data. Matter of fact, it's got data for 50 years every single month for every one of these factors and 50 years of returns for every one of these investments. So it knows how things affect things. It knows, you know, in effect at this point, it knows, it's got a lot of data that it knows. And what it's, what we're telling it generally is we're saying now, here's, here's the changes this month. So tell us now, based on these changes, what's the best possible allocation we can make among these nine different investments such that we can get the highest return but we won't go below zero, right? We, we, we won't have it. Now, it doesn't mean we never go below zero. We, we certainly have losses, but they're substantially less than the general stock market. If you look at our, our, uh, our uh, frequency of returns, you know, you can, you can clearly see this. But um, in, in the end, it gives us a much better asset allocation strategy. It's much more um objective so we're not guessing on anything we don't have to guess on anything the uh the math we're using and the approach we're using tells us exactly how to allocate the portfolio um and we listen to it we we, we apply it exactly as it's told us and we've done that for more than uh, 12 years now and uh, implementing it exactly as it tells us it, and so um, it's like you say, it's objective, it's quantitative. It doesn't matter how Vern Sumnick or Chuck Self uh, feels about the world at, at any point in time. And I can tell you there are times in which both Vern and Chuck uh, questions the model. And, and, we, don't and, like it, and yeah, we don't Yeah, we don't like the results sometimes, but it seems, uh, but usually those are the times where it works the best uh, because it is so, uh, so uh, counter. Uh, intuitive. Thank you for listening to our discussion on post-MPT allocations, the improved application of modern portfolio theory, here on the new iSector Selections podcast. Halfway through this initial conversation, we expanded into a whole other topic and took a look at the investment vehicles iSectors utilizes. So we decided to separate that into another podcast. Stay tuned for part two next week.